You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. And good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here. I am so glad you found a parking spot. You just need to know that we have things that we are investigating and doing what we are allowed to do. So we're trying to find some remedies. We just don't want you to think that church leaders were sitting on our hands and just letting things fly. We're doing the best we can. And as soon as we get some answers of what we can, we already know what we cannot do. That always gets communicated, but what we can do, we will be certain to relay things to you uh, to try to help alleviate some of that uh, difficulty. However, there's a lot of churches that like to have this problem, and I'm so glad that you are forcing us to have that problem. Without you, these problems would not exist. So anyway, today we're launching a new series called The Gospel of Matthew, following Jesus in the midst of chaos. I don't want to say too much here on the front end because it's a part of the message itself today. But what we oftentimes is, we lack an understanding of the context of what was happening when Matthew wrote his gospel. And so I'm going to be telling you a little sooner here, or a little later here, to make sure you might want to put some notes in the margin of your Bible related to the context of Matthew, because it totally redefines what you read and what you understand about that gospel. But today I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of the word, if you would. And in this series, we will not be doing sequential verses. We'll be moving around the Gospel of Matthew to highlight the impact of why he wrote what he wrote and what it was saying to the people who were receiving this. And so the best thing I know to do is let's start with Matthew's testimony so that we have a better understanding of where he was coming from with this. So Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, let's read this together. As Matt, or Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn from what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Holy Spirit, I pray as we study the word that you would uh, put in us the word of your spirit. That we would sense not just what we hear with our ears, But there's a a language, Holy Spirit, that you speak in every person's heart. And I want them to hear you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 The Lord bless you. Be seated. So the, the title is Following Jesus in the Midst of Chaos. Why do I think this is appropriate for us? I would say this. Why don't we just go back and do a trajectory of where life has been and gone in the last five years. Most of us 
Well, I would say all, nobody in this room saw what we have experienced in the last five years. Nobody saw all this event. And I'm just talking not only anything from regional, national, but even international, okay? And I could list a whole variety of things from the pandemic all the way up to inflation and a balloon that was... <laughs> actually went outside, I thought, well, you never know. I just wanna see if I can find it, you know? And uh, I guess it was down in North Carolina somewhere, you know, and so I thought, well, Pastor Malik, we should have just run down there, man, stay with your family for a while. But anyway, it's just all this chaos. And what you notice is this, chaos never makes an appointment on your calendar. You know, you never go, hey, you know, I just want to let you know next week, chaos, Monday morning, 10 o'clock. It shows up unannounced, it shows up. And it just happens, and what you find is you have to deal with chaos, whether it be on uh, an, an international level or, re, or national or regional or local. What you have is this. It's whatever you have in the toolbox that day. That's what you have because it, it didn't come as a grand announcement. It didn't give you a chance to make all the plans and everything. that you, you just, It's time to handle the chaos that has just showed up. And so you, you go to your toolbox and you either find that what, everything you need is there and you can deal with it. And I'm talking about the, the, the personal and relational skills and, and resources that we have to handle crises. Or we find out there's deficiencies and then we spend more time looking for those resources than we do dealing with the crisis. And so what I have to do is kind of lay some things out historically so that you get a really good picture of what was going on as it relates to the Gospel of Matthew. But before I share those historical insights, one of the things is this. Some people are dismissive or critical of Christianity when bad things happen. We've all heard somebody say this phrase. They, they say it like this. Something national has happened, something catastrophic has happened, and you'll hear people use the phrase, hey, how could a loving God let that happen? Sometimes you'll even hear national figures make the off-the-cuff remark, if, if, if there's a God, how could a loving God let that happen? Now, what I'm about to say, I have to say, I make sure I say this in a measured form and that it's understood uh, and that the context is receptive to what I'm about to use right here. So I don't say this every time that comment is made, but it oftentimes is appropriate, and I'm going to share with you what I say oftentimes. I go, no, hey, wait a minute. Let's be careful not to blame God. Because after all, he was disinvited. God was asked to leave. We see this across our nation. Many people disinviting God from the public forums and from various venues and expressions. And so when you disinvite God, you have to be aware that a vacuum does not remain. Something else comes in. And so this is, this is some of the things that happen when you tell God to leave. He leaves. Now, that doesn't mean he leaves me, okay? So I, I bring Jesus in you if you have him in your life. But we have to sometimes be willing to take on those tough conversations with people to help them to understand God didn't do that. And God is a gentleman. But if people tell God to bug off, he will leave them alone. But they have to be aware that there's a consequence associated with it. Jesus said that. 
if you put if you put out the strong man the strong man will come back and he will if he finds a vacant he will bring seven others with them so you're actually making things worse if you don't have the right presence in your life and in a context so what is often overlooked though when it looks at this area of chaos and difficulty is is in our understanding of the Bible is most of it was written when things were difficult and or chaotic I mean after all difficulties and chaos often serve as a wake-up call for people to turn get turn to God you will find exceptions to what I'm about to say but as a general rule Nobody, you never hear the testimony, you know, it was when I got the promotion, I was making all that money, and I had all this stuff, and then I realized I need Jesus. How many know, usually it's the other way around. I didn't get the promotion, my finances went down, I was on the verge of losing my job, or I did lose my job, my health was called into crisis, my family was falling apart, and my friends abandoned me, and I was on my way down, and I was like... Man, there's just got to be some hope. It's, it's, it's always on the spiral down that people start calling out to God. It's never on the spiral up. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to say you won't find people who's their story that on their way up in, in life that they did discover and accept Jesus. But for most people, hey, most people are feelers when it comes to spiritual things. And until they start to feel some pain, it's really easy to ignore God. And difficulties and chaos has a way of people turning around and going, hmm, God, I maybe haven't had you as a priority in my life like I should have. And so while we sometimes read the Gospel of Matthew from our perspective of where we are at in life, I want to transport you back 2,000 years. And I want you to catch the mindset of the people that Matthew was writing to. And so some of these are historical uh, facts that I would say it would really do you well to put this in the margin of your Bible and when you read the Gospel of Matthew if you could just like mentally get yourself there in 60 seconds you know like I just want to remind myself this is what was going on and this is what and so if I had that mindset how would I read the Gospel of Matthew if these events were in my life today and you start to see there's a lot of what I call messages messages in the scripture that you and I miss because of the distance and the safety with which in we live and we read things. So let me give it to you. So here we go. Number one, everybody read this out loud. Text without context, text without context leads the pretext. Uh, we were in a gathering of some of our leadership here and we had a fun time. Pastor uh, Austin was the game show host. And one of the questions was, what's Pastor Greg's, one of Pastor Greg's famous sayings? And that was the one that popped up. And I said, oh, okay, they are listening. <laughs> it's always good when the leadership can tell you what you, you know, anyway, we got great <laughs> leaders here. So what I mean is this. I need to know the context because what you see in Christianity today, I hear people say, why is there so many different versions and interpretations of the Bible? You go to one church that say one thing, you go to another say another. I say, because one of the things that you often hear absent is the context. I know, I know talking about history as a pastor and as a preacher, you know, it's kind of like, mm, okay, let's grind it out and endure it until it gets to the really good stuff. But the context is everything. Because once you set the context, you really see it's not like five lanes of interpretation. Once you set the context, it's really one lane. And sometimes it says things that we don't like. 
But how many know that we only do two things at the bridge? We comfort the afflicted and we afflict the comfortable. That's it. Wherever you're at, we're, we're ready for you today, all right? So, here's, let me give you the history, let me give you a timeline. We're only going to talk about a 15-year window, okay? A 15-year window in the New Testament. Many of you have heard me refer to this over and over because it was a substantial uh, um, uh, event in the New Testament history because so many of the writings that we have of the New Testament surrounded this event. In 64 AD, the city of Rome was burned to the ground. Nero, the emperor, even though he was responsible for it, he blamed the followers of Christ, which led to this massive persecution. So the Christians were scattering, and the Christians were being slaughtered, and they were being hunted down. And by the way, it was through this that the great missionary movement of the New Testament church happened. God used the scattering of the church to get the gospel out there. Now, the conditions were not exactly favorable. But the point being was, Nero, in all his evil ways, actually helped propel the gospel worldwide. Because, you know, you had people say, well, I don't feel called to missions. And God says, we can solve that. <laughs> How about if you have to go on the run for your life? Oh, yeah, I believe in missions now. And that's what happened. It, 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 that, that scattering of the church actually turned into a massive missionary movement. Okay? But this is key. Because what this did in the Jewish mindset was this. Two of their enemies were now being eliminated with one stone. Number one, they were thrilled that Rome was burnt to the ground. The political capital of the world was just brought down in ruins. It was going to be a huge economic setback for the Roman Empire, just like it would be if, if one of our major cities burnt to the ground. The second thing is they viewed Christianity as a cult, as a threat. And so here they had two of their enemies as Jewish people. Two of their enemies were at each other. And so for them, it was like, wow, look at God delivering us as a Jewish people. He's getting rid of the evil Roman Empire, and simultaneously, he is dealing with this new cult called Christianity. As Jewish people, we rejoice. Win-win. And then something happened. In 70 AD, the Roman Empire sent General Titus up to Jerusalem. He sacked it. He destroyed it. He just, when I say sacked, I mean he leveled the place. They spent months just pushing the walls. They, they just totally leveled the city and burnt anything that could be burnt. And here's the thing. The siege began around Passover, so there were well over a million Jews in Jerusalem at the time. And historians have a, a disagreement on what the casualty rate was. But some estimate, at very minimum, there were at least 600,000 Jews killed and up to 1.1 million were killed. Now, you've got to put those numbers in their day. And then on top of that, the whole nation was enslaved. There were a number of, of families that at that moment, they, listen, they go to a religious holiday and their family is captured. Mom goes one direction, dad goes another, and the kids go another, and they never saw each other again. What was supposed to be a unifying celebration of gathering at God's house ended up being the most mag uh, magnanimous tragedy that had ever hit Israel. And it wasn't, it wasn't until Israel was founded in 1948 that the rebound ever happened. 
So it was that catastrophic. And so suddenly the Jewish people are saying this. So why, God, did you do this to us? See, they understood Rome and the Christians. They were like, yeah, but they had been saying for years, God's got our back and he's taken on the enemies. God, you did worse to us. What's that about? So there was a lot of disillusionment, a lot of anger, frustration. Their house of God had been wiped out. It was during this time that Matthew was writing his gospel. Now, you see up there I have about 70 A.D. Some theologians say it was written a little before that. Some theologians say it was written just after this. But the context is this. No matter how you look at this, Matthew was writing his gospel not knowing that Jerusalem was going to be leveled. So in some ways it's prophetic. But if you want to hold to the timeline that, let's say, push it up even to 75 A.D., you have Matthew responding to the tragedy. Either way, you have a very unique book of, of, the, uh, 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 of Matthew's, the gospel, that shows up because the disillusionment with the Jewish people was present, and he's trying to show them Jesus is the Messiah that you have been waiting on. But no matter the date, there's also one other prophetic thing that happened afterwards. You see, in 79 or 74 AD, how many have ever heard or saw the movie Masada? It was the last holdout of the Jewish revolt. So even though Jerusalem fell, there was a group that was holding out up at Masada, and they finally fell in 74 AD. So the last elements of trying to beat Rome were snuffed out. They lost their city. Now there wasn't even a rebellion. Rome had won the day. No hope. There's, there's nothing left to even challenge them. And then on top of that, some of you know this, some of you students in school know this, but I, was, I, want, I want you to see how the secular history ties into biblical history here. In 79 AD, the port of Pompeii was destroyed, buried in ash, because of uh, Mount Vesuvius that erupted. And still today, they're finding those bodies that are frozen in those positions because of the poisonous gas. They died and they were buried in 13 to 20 feet of ash. And they're still digging that city out. So what I want you to see in 15 years, listen, 15 years, the political capital of the world was destroyed. The religious capital of the Jewish people was destroyed. And one of the great economic centers on the Mediterranean Sea was destroyed. All three in 15 years. How many know? That would definitely say, where's God? I mean, just put, put ours, that, that equating to us today, and I'm, I'm certainly not asking that there be any type of tragedy here, but that would be equa you know, equated to our capital, Washington, D.C., one of our major ports, let's just say Houston, and one of our major uh, religious centers. I don't think we could say we got a religious center, but let's just choose a, a city in random and say Kansas City, you know, I don't know, just because it's halfway. What would, what would the mindset be of people if D.C., Houston, and Kansas City were all gone in 15 years? I'm not saying, they were, they were like them, they set out to rebuild, but how many know you don't rebuild those places overnight? And people would just be going, what's going on here? It's bad enough to have a city, but all three? It would call, cause a lot of soul searching. It would, it would have economic impacts of, of huge proportions. And this is what was going on in the Jewish mind. What in the world is happening? 
And this is all happening under Rome's watch. It's not like these are invading. This is Rome. They control. How can this be happening when it's one, it's one political system that's got everything under control, and yet nothing is under control? So Matthew writes his gospel because what he's writing to is a group of people who are losing hope in everything and anything. They're just losing it. And there's an in, in, inquiry, well, what about this Jesus? Could it be tied to that? His death and resurrection. These Christians. Is, 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 it, tied, is it tied there? And so he's trying to show them that Jesus is the Messiah. And Rome does not have the answer. And Jerusalem does not have the answer. And Pompeii does not have the answer. Jesus has their answer. Now, if you can always get that mindset before you read the Gospel of Matthew, it, it reads different. Okay? That's why a lot of it, he, he, he is chronological in his stories from time to time, but not always. Okay? So here we are, we're diving in the middle, Matthew chapter 9, and he tells his story. And when you understand that, you read Matthew's story different, because these are folks who have lost their way, lost their hope, and they've lost their families. They don't even know where they're at. And they're like, does God even know what's going on here? And Matthew's story, his testimony, tells us that. So number one, read this out loud. Everybody together. Jesus knows where you are and who you are, even when you've made poor choices. Can anybody say amen to that? Sometimes we make bad decisions. We lose our way, and we're not even sure Jesus can find us. Matthew starts his story off with this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. The first thing that Matthew says is this, I didn't find Jesus, Jesus found me. And he found me in the exact spot where I was lost as a tax collector. What does that mean to be a tax collector? Well, first of all, actually his real name, Matthew's real name, was Levi, son of Alphaeus. That was his real name. We're going to get into that a little bit here later. But that's not what he calls himself when he's writing his own story. He says, my name is Matthew. Because see, what had happened is this. Because he was born into the tribe of Levi, he was destined to become a priest. The priests existed to give people hope with God and hope with their walk with God. And especially with the Romans coming in, the role of a priest was even more important that, hey, I know life is way harder than we thought it was going to be, but God's with us. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. And what happened was this. Matthew betrayed his faith. He not only stopped preaching the hope, he became the problem gave up his calling and actually went to work for the thing that was causing all the issues. Secondly, he betrayed his country. He's a Jewish citizen. And instead of helping his countrymen find a way out of the jam, he is interested in keeping them in a jam. And then he takes on an occupation which is really a license to extort the people. Many of you may not know how taxation worked back then, but here's how it worked. Rome expected 
a certain amount for every citizen represented in the tax collector's region. They had the body count. They knew how many were there. And it was a flat fee. They wanted from that tax collector X amount of, uh, of resources for that number of people. Then they left it to the tax collector to go around and enforce the code. Anything he got over what he paid Rome was his, 100%. Can everybody see why you wanted to cheat as a tax collector? So he's out gouging people. And he has the military, he has the government to back him up on his interpretation of the law. So it really didn't do any good to argue too much. You could push back a little bit, but you ran the risk of getting arrested or even beaten. If Matthew said this is what you were going to pay him, that's what you were going to pay him. So it's one thing to walk away from your faith. It's another thing to walk away from your country, but now he's actually extorting. And Jesus goes to him. I'm going to get into this in a little bit, but it shows us the power of what God wants us to do. But some of you, I want to talk to you from this side. Some of you may be like Matthew. You say, you have no idea how many bad choices I've made in my life. You have no idea the things that I've done. Can I tell you, you're lost, but Jesus still knows where you're at. Yes. You think that you're buried under a mountain of consequence, and you don't think you can get out from under it. Can I tell you, I don't know how it's all going to play out, but I can tell you this. I don't care how far you bury yourself under consequence. Jesus knows where you are. He knows where your booth is. And he's not afraid to come to where you're at and say, I know that you think your sin hides you. I think you, you think by doing these things that you are changing who you are. Can I tell you, Jesus says, I still know who you are. You can try all the modifications. You can try all the stuff. You can do all that. I still know who you are and where you are at. You can't hide from me. And you know what? That's a good thing. I know that that could be said as a threat, that he's going to judge you and he's going to get... I'm not going to tell you that there's not a judgment coming. But my Bible says today's the day of salvation. I thought it would be a little better than that. All right. Number two, read it out loud. God uses relationships to expose people to his transformative power. Everybody wants, you know, we all have people we go, okay, let me ask you. How many have ever said, God needs to get a hold of them? Yeah, you're just, I just want God to get a hold of us. You know, sometimes our motives aren't real pure in how we're saying that, but we get the gist. Man, it would be awesome to see a change. And what you don't realize is, is, is you're probably one of the vessels that he wants to use. Oh, no. I'm going to keep him at arm's distance. I'll pray for him, but I'm not getting that close. No, nah, man, God uses relationships. So... What I want to point out to you, again, is something about tax collectors. Tax collectors were barred from the synagogue. <laughs> Everybody wants the tax collector to repent and turn to God. Number one, but you can't come to our house. You want him to find God, but you won't let him in the door. Secondly, tax, there was no social contact allowed. Jews would monitor each other. We know you have to talk to him when he's taxing you, but that doesn't mean you have to have lunch with the guy. 
So there was an unwritten rule in the Jewish community. No socializing with the tax collector. Shun them. And then everybody says, well, somebody needs to give them a witness. Well, I know, but if you're going to shun them, that kind of makes it hard. I mean, if I can't talk to them, how are they supposed to be presented with the gospel? And then on top of that, tax collectors were forbidden from testifying in court. They were equated with murderers and thieves. They could witness a crime, and you couldn't include them on your list of witnesses. They were forbidden. Yeah, but he saw. Yeah, but he's a tax collector. But he's a witness. I'm sorry, he's a tax collector. He's not welcome. His testimony, you're going to have to get somebody else to testify. That's how, so I want you to see how pushed out they are. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, Matthew, I'm preaching at the synagogue tonight. Love for you to come hear me. He knew that couldn't happen. Jesus says this, since you can't come to the synagogue, how about I come to your house? How about I show up so we can keep this going? And what you recognize here is this. He's having dinner at Matthew's house. Look at this. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Relationships are transformative when people sense that something is happening in a positive fashion in somebody that they know they want to come around and find out what's going on with my friend, what's going on with my family member. There's being a change. Who are you hanging out with? and what are you, Where are you getting all this change? What's going on? And notice Jesus merely goes to Matthew's house, but everybody knows something's different about this guy because Matthew's acting different in this Jesus. We know he preaches in a synagogue, and he's going to Matthew. It, it, it attracts. God's transformative power rides on relationships. So let me, let me say it another way. We need to recognize the value of building legitimate, true relationships with people who are not followers of Jesus. And, it, and it's not just the, the fact that, well, as long as they're interested in my witness, I'll be their friend. No, you just need to be their friend anyway. Because it's not up to you to decide what day they're going to get interested in God. It's just your responsibility to be there that when the day that they get interested in God, you just happen to be in their life and you have credibility to speak to them and help them. But sometimes we try to impart wisdom with no relational investment. And people don't care what you know until they know how much you care. You got to learn to be somebody's friend, true blue, straight up and just pray God I pray this relationship that, that I'm investing in with this person one day there's an opportunity to tell them what's going on in my life and I want to see that happen in their life so God help help me to be a friend really not because I'm trying to get something and if I don't get it then I'm moving on no hey let me just say can you believe I've had people who don't like me? I know, it's just amazing, isn't it? Do you know I've had, I've had, and, 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 and I've had people yell at me. Isn't that amazing? They just get mad and they just let it fly. And so this is generally how I respond most of the time because the Bible says in James, a gentle answer turns away wrath. And so they're, 
they're letting me have it and, you know, letting it fly. And, and I go, you know, when I get an opportunity, because, you know, you got to catch them between breaths. <laughs> and I'll say, uh, hey, you know what your problem is? And that, that, always, that always lights them up more. Because <laughs> they're, they're ready. What? What do you think my problem is? You got a problem in that you're stuck with me. I care about what happens to you. And how you're acting right now actually ups my level of care about you. I understand we may not be having conversations like we used to because you're upset. And I understand that dynamic. But you just need to know that you're stuck with me. Because I've always prayed for you. Now I'll probably be praying for you more. <laughs> but in a positive way, I, I won't be praying against you. I won't be, oh God, level them. In Jesus' name. You know, smack, no. I said, you know, God, there's a lot of pain there. You let me see the pain. You let me feel it. And I pray for my friend. I said, I will always call you friend. I will always pray for you as friend. You may not always call me that, but you need to know that you're stuck with me. No matter where you go, no matter how much you cut me off and you don't want to, I will always pray for you. We may not have the dialogue that we once had, but I always will pray for you, never against you. God uses relationships for his transformative power to help people. And listen, I know what it's like to have to stand there and you get this barrage of, of comments and you know, you just, and then all your one-liners start coming to a head, you know, they're, uh, here's an opportunity to give all my, and you know, you're just like, really, the, you, you really think that's going to make things better? You really think they're going to walk away and go, well, they must be a Christian, because boy, they had some awesome one-liners. <laughs> no. See, our mind makes us, our emotions make us think that, but it doesn't work. In fact, if anything, we push them further from any, any understanding of the gospel. So we, we just say, I'm going to be praying for you. You're stuck with me as a friend. I understand our, 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 the dynamics have changed, but you're still, you still matter to me. And so Jesus went to his house. Why? Because Matthew mattered to him. And guess what? The other tax collectors and sinners wanted to know, why does Jesus care about this guy? Nobody cares about us. And they don't come to our house. Relationships, man, are the backbone of God's transformative power. Listen to me. He wants to use you. You. We all, we get, sometimes we get this mindset. Well, what I need to do is I need to invite him in a, a church service, and, and it's a powerful service. Give it to him, Pastor Greg. That's not how that works. Do, do you know we have people coming to our connection groups who have yet to set foot in the bridge? Well, what's wrong with them? <laughs> yeah, they, there's people who, who watch us online, who's, who signed up in the connection group parade and fair online as they watched it, and they're going to the connection, and they haven't set foot in here. You need to tell them how good it is in here. <laughs> no, I mean, they, but that's all right. Because, listen, we go to where they are, which takes me to my next point. 
Faith causes us to be proactive rather than reactive. Notice what he said. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, what does your teacher, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. James totally got that. He was the sick guy. And what do you do with sickness? I want you to look at the medical profession. Yes, they have places where they can say, if you are sick or you are injured or you need something, come here and we will help you. But they are also prepared to bring the medical field to where you are. That's why we have paramedics. That's why we have these helicopters and the lifeline support system. That's why the ambulances have what they have inside. Why? Because you sometimes can't wait for them to get to the medical facility. You've got to take some of the resources of the medical facility to where they are. This is also popular in the military. They set up field hospitals trying to get it close to where some of the injuries that are happening to our soldiers because they understand sometimes you can't get the injured from there to there so we need to take what's here and take it out there and they have radically saved so many uh, soldiers lives over the decades because of understanding sometimes you got to get the medicine to them some units even have a medic You can't always wait for the sick to come to you. You don't know it, but you're somebody's paramedic. Spiritually. You're the field hospital. You're the lifeline. You're the helicopter ride. You're it. It's not always, well, if we can just get him to a church service, and then Pastor Greg can take over. <laughs> As I said, we have people who are, who are finding the bridge. They're in connection groups. They haven't come here yet, but they, they are in the groups. They're making friends. This morning, we had a family. I was talking to them. I said, how'd you guys find the bridge? They said, well, we've relocated to the community, and I found you on Instagram. I don't even know what Instagram is. <laughs> I have to, I'm going to have to ask Peter, our media director. I know you do Instagram. What is Instagram? See, if you don't know by now, if you waited to do things around here until I fully understood them, do you realize how slow we would be moving? <laughs> People just finding that. Why? Because we're... We're in a proactive, let's take it to them and stop waiting for them to come to us. No. Let's be the church and go to them. Amen? Here's the last thing. Everybody read this out loud. Your testimony, your testimony is someone else's hope and inspiration. I bumped up against this a while back, this, this point story about Matthew. I've got some additional things I'm going to share that I've learned since then about this. In the Gospel of Matthew, he writes, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I do not come to call the righteous but sinners. Boy, that was, that was Matthew. He's like, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10 on sinning. I'm an 11. I've betrayed anything and everything. And I've been extorting my people for years to have a standard of living that I have. 
I am, I am the one that Jesus came for because I'm not the righteous. Came to change my life. But there's some interesting dynamics about this guy's life. And like I said, I bumped up against this a while back, but I'm going to unpack it just a little bit more. You go into the other Gospels, and it's interesting, they never call him Matthew. Matthew is the only one who calls himself Matthew. <laughs> Everybody else calls him something else. Let's go to Luke, or Mark, chapter 2, verse 14. What did Mark say? As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, Alphaeus sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Oh, he calls him Levi. Then you go into the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verse 25. So this is Luke. He says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. Interesting. The other people always call him Levi. Matthew never uses the term. He calls himself Matthew. Why is that? Well, you get into Mark chapter 2, verse 14. There's an interesting little dynamic in there because he says, son of Alphaeus. So now we know who the guy's dad is. So two things tell us this. We know what his occupation was, Levi, which was the tribe of Levi. And we know that his father's name was Alphaeus. But again, Matthew never uses the terminology on himself. He lets other people call him this. And so what you see here is this. Let me back this up before I put that up. I want, to, I want you to hear. Matthew never, it appears that Matthew never had the courage to identify himself as what he once was because he was so far off the end. He said, I am not a Levite. I'm not even the son of Alphaeus. Because his family would have literally said he's dead because it could have been consequential to him, to them, to say that tax collector is over there as our son. That could have been consequential for them with their Jewish friends and community. So by the time Matthew becomes a follower of Jesus, there's a lot of consequences that have now been built into the, his decision making. And I don't know if you know this or not, but even when you accept Jesus, not everybody around you is ready to accept that. Come on. It takes time. So Matthew is showing people I do not have the right to call myself Levi. I do not have the call, the right to tell you that I'm the son of Alphaeus. I'm a saved Matthew, is what I am. And what's cool is this. This is where community comes in. Mark and Luke saw the change in Matthew. And when they wrote their Gospels, they said, we understand why you call yourself Matthew, but you need to know, according to us in our community, we see you as Levi. We validate the change that has happened in you. And we're not afraid to call you by your old name. You're Levi. And you're Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Isn't that cool? The power of community to say, we see the change. And we'll call you that. And we'll embrace you, not as Matthew, but Levi. Here's the other part that's new that I didn't share last time. When Matthew begins to list the 12 disciples down in Matthew chapter 10, there's an interesting comment that comes up. And so I don't call all the 12 disciples, but I want you to note this. It says, these are the names of the 12 apostles. And so I'm skipping some of the names and just getting to this verse. Thomas and Matthew the what? 
He doesn't say, you know, but notice this. James, son of Matthias. Matthew's brother. He says, James, you're worthy to be called the son of Alphaeus. I'm not. So when I list our names, you're James, son of Alphaeus. I'm your brother. But I'm not worthy to be called your brother, and I'm not worthy to call dad my dad. So when I write, I'm Matthew, the tax collector. And you're the son of Alphaeus, James. Because you've earned it. Matthew was showing people that no matter how far you lose your way, he knows where you're at. And he says, come. And he says, I can change you. And that sometimes you're working through junk, and the community says, we see the change in you. And you go, yeah, but I let a lot of people down, and so I'm still working with it. So this, well, that's fine. But for us, you're Levi now, man. Welcome home. You, listen to me, we all need community to tell us, I see a change in you. Man, that causes you to stand up a little taller, put a little more effort into it, and go, wow, people do see God's working in my life. Well, how cool is this? He screwed up speaking in a synagogue. Matthew. And God says, we can work with that. How about I let you contribute to the all-time best-selling book in the world? And instead of preaching to a synagogue... How about I give you a platform that you can literally speak to every synagogue that has ever been and ever will be? I will give you that platform. You will not go back to the synagogue where you messed up, but I will give you a platform that can tell your story in every single synagogue that there ever will, has been, and will be. Your story will live, Matthew, Levi, son of Alphaeus. Let me tell you this, God can change your destiny like that if you'll commit your life to him. And everybody said amen. Come on, let's stand as, stand as we wrap up the service today. Come on, can you lift your hands and praise him for his transformative power that changes your life, people around you. Listen, man, you're the lifeline for somebody. Come on, praise him. <laughs>